Hello and welcome to The Current Thing with me, Nick Dixon, and today we have a wonderful guest, my friend Lois McClatchy, a commentator on faith, free speech and bioethics according to her Twitter bio, which basically means we're going to be talking about abortion and I'm going to get in trouble again. Because Lois is a pro-life advocate. She works for the ADF, a faith-based legal advocacy organization. So we'll be getting into these new buffer zones, which are causing people to be arrested for praying in their heads. Welcome to Britain 2023. So Lois, thanks for doing this, first of all. Thank you. It's an important subject to speak about. So I'm so glad that you're covering it on your podcast. No worries. Um, it'll be fun and probably get me, like I say, cancelled yet again. But um, I was just gonna, I'm just looking at my phone because I was just going to read out. The ADF, who you work for, have been accused of sort of bringing American culture wars into Britain. And I just looked at the Wikipedia, obviously a reliable, totally impartial source. And they say the ADF is an American conservative Christian legal advocacy group that works to curtail rights for LGBTQ people. And then later, it says that the Southern Poverty Law Center designates ADF as an anti-LGBT hate group. So Lois, why are you working for an (laughs) anti-LGBT hate group? Well, as I think you might be familiar with already from the Tony Brewer voice, the SPLC, Southern Poverty Law Center, are a very discredited far left group uh, in the US who have since been, you know, on Wall Street Journal, on all the big kind of hitters in the US, New York Times have all discredited this group. Uh, they create a kind of list of groups that they don't like every year and they call them hate groups. And unfortunately, for kind of uh, very um, journalists that don't like us so much, it's a very easy way to smear us. But the truth could not be further from that. Uh, We're a group that actually supports and defends human rights for all people. Uh, And I work for ADF UK. So we're a UK based charity uh, based in Westminster that's focused on rights and freedoms for uh, people here in Britain. So you work for the nice UK one. Yeah, because the Southern Poverty Law Centre, I believe, didn't didn't Ben Shapiro sue them? Didn't a couple of other people sue them for defamation? Oh, they've been sued a lot of times for defamation. There's been scandals at the top level. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people in the UK haven't seen those headlines. So when they hear hate group from SPLC, they don't know the context of that. But yeah, it's really a smear as a bit of lazy journalism. But it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. And so not they just read it like, no, this is hateful. <laughs> and you also get in trouble for being American and you're not even American. And you're Scottish. You're like properly. So I mean, you've got a very Scottish name, McClatchy, but you sound kind of American and we're suspicious. I know. It's a bit embarrassing, really. If I think about it, I can put on my Scottish accent. Sometimes if I'm on TV in Scotland, I'll speak like that. That's better. Um, yeah, like it's, I'll try and keep that up for the podcast. So I don't know if I could manage. <laughs> I think you'll get more when you move to England, you'll, you'll sound more, well, doesn't sound like it makes sense, but you'll sound a bit more Scottish. Because yeah, you sort of, you maybe, live in Vienna and stuff, don't you? I live in Vienna at the moment, so our international headquarters are, but moving to London uh, very soon. So who knows, maybe I'll turn out English next. Maybe that's next on my road to... You should <laughs> switch to English. Um, so I was going to ask you, but last time we met, we, we were hanging out and then we were, you went to do a BBC spot just after and you got in big trouble. I thought, oh, this will go well for Lois. She, she seemed prepared. And instead, you got lambasted in Parliament and as some sort of misinformation spreader or something. That's what happens when you get Nick Dixon to prepare you for an interview. Yeah, yeah, I was not the right guy. <laughs> will this be fine? Nick? Yeah, of course. <laughs> Cancelled immediately. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. No, that was, that was wild. Um, and I completely stand by everything I said in that interview. It's actually pinned to the top of my Twitter, um, if anyone wants to see what I said. What's your Twitter um, account? My Twitter account is at Lois McClatch. So go to um, that. Yeah. And, and, and you were talking about the, what were you, was it the buffer zones? Yeah, it was the buffer zone. So these um, things have been really in the media in the last couple of weeks, but actually um, in the Scottish Parliament, it's been a debate going on for about a year. 
Um, and there was um, a bill that was introduced by a Green MSP, Gillian uh, Mackay, uh, that would introduce zones of about 150 metres around abortion facilities, which would not only ban harassment, which of course everybody wants to ban harassment, nobody is saying that anyone should be allowed to harass women in any situation, but they would go much further than that. Um, and what the the kind of devil in the detail is that they would also ban any form of prayer, any peaceful discussion about pro-life or just charitable services available uh, for pregnant women who would like to have another option. Maybe they feel like they were forced into abortion or that they can't see like, you know, a financial um, alternative or any way to go ahead with their pregnancy that they would have liked to. So these zones ban people from offering financial help, practical help to women uh, that would help them avoid abortion. So I was on to speak about that um, at the time. The Scottish Parliament were, were especially debating it at that point or the, the bill or the bill was being drafted at that point. Um, and I just said what I said there. I, I hadn't been invited to the Scottish Parliament to discuss it. They'd had a big event where they invited all the pro-buffer zones people but didn't invite anyone who, who disagreed. Nicola Sturgeon had hosted it. So instead of being able to speak directly to Nicola Sturgeon, I went on the BBC and said, that like we're not we're all against harassment against women but let's leave a bit of space for charitable volunteers let's leave a bit of space that we're not censoring prayer and peaceful conversations on the streets that's very sensorial um and said what i said and i thought it went quite well went home and then the next day um i heard that uh, a member of the smp uh in westminster had uh, brought up my appearance on tv in parliament i felt quite famous it's probably the most famous i've ever been for five seconds and had said that I was kind of an extremist and shouldn't be platformed on the BBC, kind of trying to deplatform me, uh, which was, yeah, it was kind of my, my biggest council moment so far. It was a good one. <laughs> I mean, I've not been mentioned in Parliament, to my knowledge. hope it doesn't happen. But um, yeah, you got mentioned in, in Parliament and surely the BBC has the royal charter, so it has to give both sides, which she was furious that it, you had even given the other side. Yeah, I mean, the SNP haven't been known to be listening to, to all voices recently, to be honest. Um, and that was kind of been demonstrated since that event. They've actually held two more summits, uh, abortion summits, they call them, and um, where they've only invited people from one side of the argument to have a kind of discussion about why buffer zones are great and we should introduce buffer zones, but haven't necessarily listened uh, to the other side. So uh, with the Scottish government kind of behaving like that, I suppose it's natural that their MSPs are shocked to hear about the BBC giving both sides to the argument and having a full discussion and um, but that's what they did so yeah they've never heard the other <laughs> side they don't they don't love hearing both sides of the SNP so <laughs> it doesn't usually go well for them as we're seeing with old Sturgeon at the moment but um so these buffer zones so so when people can't come within 150 meters of an abortion clinic and I mean, Toby Young was asking me about how it all works. He was very interested in the detail. I was just like, these sound stupid. He was like, is it done at the local level? Is it done at the national level? That's what I was struggling to understand. Sure. So in England right now, there are five councils who have brought them in at the local level. Um, so they're done under local authorities by uh, orders called Public Spaces Protection Orders, or PSPOs. Um, so they are dependent on the local administration who, so they have slightly different rules per borough. I think it's Ealing, Richmond, uh, there's one in Manchester, Birmingham and Bournemouth at the moment. Um, so they are approximately 150 metres around abortion facilities and they ban all the activities I mentioned, charitable help, prayer, as well as, of course, which is already illegal, harassment and, and intimidation sorts of things like that. Um, so at the moment it's local level, but the government are uh, right now, or the Westminster in Parliament, they are now 
um, debating, and it's going back to the Commons in a couple of weeks, a law that would roll out these buffer zones around every abortion facility in England and Wales. So it would be a national ban on praying, on peacefully exchanging information about services around abortion clinics. Okay, so I've, I've slightly buried the lead going into the detail because the big thing was this first one, the first one that sort of became very well known was Isabel Vaughan Spruce, and she was searched and arrested and she was asked in Birmingham, wasn't it, by a policeman, are you praying? She said, I might be praying in my head. And then he said, you're being arrested. Now, I talked about it on Twitter and I got a lot of hate, even from my sort of vague side, because people were saying she's not arrested for praying, she's arrested for being in a, in a zone where you're not allowed to be. And a few things were annoying about that. One is that everyone was acting like this law was like written in like slate and it had actually just, just been made up 10 minutes ago. So it's like a nonsense law. And, and they were going, well, she's breaking a public service protection order as if this is some real thing. And then, and she said, well, she's not been arrested for praying, everyone was saying. And I go, well, then why is he asked her, are you praying? And then arrested her. So clearly, so my argument was, if she was praying in her house, you still won't be arrested for that just about in 2023. But then again, if she was walking by the clinic just normally, she wouldn't be arrested for that. So it's not just being in the space. So it's clearly the combination of praying in that space that, that did it. Am I right? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought this up because there's so many uh, kind of misunderstandings and misinformation, if you like, online about what happened. Um, there are people saying that she was arrested just for being in the space. Now, that's not illegal and that's not banned by the PSPO. And there was no um, personal restriction on Isabel being near any abortion facility. Um, so she was perfectly allowed to stand there for as long as she liked. Um, what she wasn't, what she was approached for by police, as they said, what are you doing? She said, I might be praying in my head. And it was because she was praying uh, that she was subsequently arrested. And the PSPO mentions prayer as a form of protest uh, outside the clinic, which is very controversial. I didn't, if you ask any Christian or any person who prays, uh, if they think their prayer is a form of protest, they'd say, of course not. It's a thought between myself and God. Um, That's a weird idea. You, you sort of sit by the end of the bed at, at night and you just have a quick <laughs> protest. That's mental, isn't it? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And what's very interesting about this case is that she wasn't even speaking or expressing anything. So if they hadn't asked her what she was doing, they would have no idea that she was praying inside her head. So that the fact that they would interpret the PSVO as banning even silent, thoughtful prayer uh, is a bit extreme. A bit extreme is the most generous way. I can tell you've got a legal <laughs> background. That's the most generous way of putting it. And I don't want to get in trouble again because people are always trying to get me sued and things because there's a lot of haters out there. But yeah, let's be very legal and careful. But I mean, yes, very extreme, let's say. And, um, or a bit extreme, as you put it. But what do you say to the people who, even on my Twitter followers, were saying, well, she's causing trouble, so she, she doesn't have to be there. And it, I suppose it's true, she doesn't have to. So she's deliberately gone down to make a statement. So if we get into the realm where police can wander about certain bits of public streets and say, are you thinking this or are you thinking that? And if they're thinking this, they get arrested. And if they're thinking that, they don't. That is an incredibly sensorial measure. Um, if you're pro-life or if you're pro-choice, the very concept of these buffer zones, the fact that the government can police what you're thinking, what you're saying based on the opinion, the viewpoint that you hold, is something that's very dangerous for society. 
A lot of people have asked uh, Isabel why she stands there. Well, for about 20 years, she's been there actively helping, you know, give out leaflets and information about services available to, to pregnant women. Uh, and she's you know, dedicated so much of her time voluntarily to supporting women through pregnancy and beyond. This time she was standing there to pray. And there's especially for Catholics, um, standing somewhere and being in a particular place or spot to pray for something is very significant. It's the same way that you might leave, if someone dies in a spot, you might leave flowers there on the side of a road or side of a mountain or wherever it might be. Is there something significant about marking the spot? And for Isabel and for other Catholics, uh, praying in the place uh, where she's praying for is something that's significant to her faith. Mm-hmm. Perfectly reasonable. But um, it shows the toxicity of the debate in this country. I mean, the pro-life side is just so hated that even people who are sort of the kind of people who would follow me will say things like, well, she was asking for it, she's causing trouble, there's a public service protection order. I find that amazing. But I mean, you must have noticed this, that it's just so, so toxic just even being pro-life. It is. There's such a misconception um, in the media about what we're doing out there. Um, People very quickly jump to the conclusion that these terrible pro-lifers are going and bashing people over the heads with signs and saying, you know, get away from me, Satan. Of course, that's absolutely ridiculous. Firstly, pro-lifers have no interest in harassing pregnant women. If their view, if their objective in being out there is to support both lives of mother and child, being harassing and being violent is not going to serve that purpose at all. And so there's no interest in that. And when the government carried out a review into what was happening outside abortion facilities in 2018, they actually found that instances of harassment were very rare and that there was already um, laws in place that could prosecute it when it occurred. And so it's it's very clear that what the majority of pro-lifers are doing, the vast, vast majority, is very helpful. It's a great service. You know, often pro-lifers are accused of being, oh, you're not pro-life, you're pro-birth, you just don't care about the woman, Uh, you don't care about her after she's given birth. Actually, pro-lifers have been going above and beyond to, to prove that it's not true. They're offering services like, you know, housing and um, baby supplies and uh, childcare, uh, you know, before and after pregnancy. So they're doing a great work, a great charitable work, and yet, uh, unfortunately, not always recognized for doing so. Hmm. Yeah, well, I find it very hard to imagine you harassing someone anywhere. <laughs> but maybe there's another side to you I haven't seen. <laughs> I think anyone listening would be like, I don't think Lois is going to harass anyone. I suppose I'd say, well, some people might, but as you said, very rare. What about the case of um, Adam Smith Connor was another one who was a father, an army veteran, who was fined for telling authorities, "I'm I'm praying for my son who's deceased within a buffer zone. No, did you see that video footage? I think it's floating around on ADF UK website, Twitter, my Twitter, that kind of thing. It's the uh, the local authorities. Uh, these weren't police officers; they were um, officers employed by the council to be kind of walking around and making sure that no one's praying in the buffer zone. I suppose um, they came and approached him and asked what the nature of his prayer was, and he said very respectfully, "Yeah, I'm praying for my son who's deceased." Uh, and they said, I'm very sorry for your loss, but nevertheless, I have to enforce the rules of the PSPO, which bans prayer, etc. Um, so it was a very, it's, a, it's quite a shocking piece of footage to watch if you're kind of someone who's into Orwell and, and thinking about the thought police. Um, and yeah. Adam had actually had his own experience with abortion, which makes his story so touching. Um, he had... Um, driven his girlfriend about 20 years ago uh, to an abortion clinic and paid for her to have an abortion. And it was something that later in life he deeply regretted. 
um, and he often thinks about the child that he would have had um, and it's something that's very close to his heart. He also actually participated in abortions uh, as part of his uh, medical training. He did medical training for the army and um, yeah, was involved in, in procedures there uh, earlier in life. And it's something that's clearly marked him uh, and something that he wanted to pray about. Um, so being there, he had his black to the clinic, by the way, he wasn't looking at anyone. He wasn't trying to get anyone's identity. He wasn't harassing or even engaging with anyone. He was just praying about what had happened in his life, what had happened to his son. Uh, and praying for the staff in the clinic, praying for the women who were considering abortions that they, yeah, would find grace and not kind of be in the situation that he was in that day. Mm-hmm. And that's fair enough. And that was in um, Birmingham as well, was it? That was in Bournemouth. Oh, that's Bournemouth. Mm-hmm. Okay, because so I was thinking, what's up with this Birmingham place where they all, this <laughs> one clinic? Because this, this, this one was in Birmingham, the uh, Father Sean Goff, which is a big one at the moment. He's a Catholic priest. And he was charged with the, breaching the PSPO. And he had a sign up saying, praying for free speech. Is that right? Yeah, he did. He had a sign up saying, praying for free speech. So this is the, actually the only one of the three cases at uh, the moment where he wasn't thinking or praying about abortion, uh, which is interesting because the PSPO bans activity all about expressing approval or disapproval of an abortion. So if Father Jean was praying for free speech, he wasn't really doing any of that. He should have been technically within the rules, um, but he was charged uh, nevertheless. And he was also charged uh, for another thing. He had a bumper sticker on his car that he'd had on for like a year. I didn't really think about it. Um, he parked his car in the buffer zone and he went to pray and they charged him for that because the, uh, the sticker said, unborn lives matter. Hmm. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, this, really, this is an issue that crosses between pro-life and free speech. And even if people hate the pro-life movement, they should care about the free speech part, which is that if you can't pray for free or hold up a sign saying you're having a little thought about free speech in a, in a zone, I mean, it's, it's absolutely mental, isn't it? And he was, um, so the, the police said there were no laws being broken, according to this thing I've got here from the article. And then, um, but he was invited for an interview with the police, interrogated, then charged. But then later the charges were dropped. But they said they can also be reinstated at any time. I know. How confusing is that? And that's actually the same thing that happened to Isabel. Um, so both in both cases, they, after you know weeks had gone by, obviously a lot of distress on their part. They're, they're kind of very upstanding citizens. They're not used to being kind of in trouble with the police. In trouble, he's a priest. So not used to being in trouble with court. Um, but they... And, were dropped with this kind of like hanging over their heads of, but if we get new evidence, we can be starting this all again from scratch. Um, so both Isabel and Father Sean, they wanted to clear their name. They wanted clarity as to the law, as to if they had really broken anything or done anything wrong. Uh, so they said, actually, you know what? I think we should get this sorted out in court after all. Uh, and they will be in court in on Thursday this week. So in a few days from now. Okay, so by the time this podcast comes out, we probably will have just had that case. And you think they're going to win, surely? <laughs> we Are to, we not allowed course. to comment? Is that, is that something we can't comment on? <laughs> we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, we'll wait and I'm see. sure it will be in the news by the time uh, that this podcast Yeah, well, if they've out, lost, so. that will be even more crazy. We'll have to do a follow-up. Um, but yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, let's not say anything that gets me in legal trouble. But um, <laughs> there's so many haters trying to get me in trouble for everything I say. But um, yeah, so that was, that was that, in these cases, absolutely crazy. For you, are they more... A pro-life or a free speech issue and is your whole interest in this more from a pro-life or free speech angle or both mm, that's a really good question i think primarily free speech and 
Baroness Fox, Baroness Claire Fox, has actually made a really good point about this in Parliament uh, when the Lords were considering the National Buffer Zones Bill. And she's written in a spectator last week as well. And she's very clear that she's pro-choice. She identifies as pro-choice. She wants women to be able to have abortions. Um, but she said there's, you know, if a woman approaches a clinic and she's not sure about her choice, uh, to have an abortion and she receives a leaflet that says you know there's help available if you change your mind if it's financial support that you need if it's whatever it is that you need we can provide for you and she says you know what in that case i would like to change your mind that is a free conversation if you're a truly a pro-choice person you would say oh that's her choice that's great we supported her to make an empowered choice for what she wanted which was motherhood um, so it's it's not necessarily a pro-life thing. It's something that's pro-women uh, and pro-free speech to say that conversation can take place. We're not going to patronize every woman who's considering abortion by saying, oh, you're too fragile to hear about the options available to you. No, you have to just go straight into the clinic. No, we, let, let's give women the choice uh, that we you know are so proud to, to be championing in this cultural moment. So I think it's primarily a free speech issue and everybody can get on board with this, whatever they think about abortion. But of course, I want to be able to make sure that um, both lives are able to be supported in a pregnancy because that's what I believe and I believe that both lives matter. So by giving out leaflets at um, a, point, a really important point in women's lives, to give them that opportunity to, to keep their child, to see that child flourish, uh, for them to become mothers, of course I support that um, as a woman, as a pro-lifer and as a citizen, I suppose. Sorry to interrupt this episode with the brilliant Lois, but we have a slight shift in tone because we have a personal note from our loyal founding commercial sponsor, Thor Holt. And he's written that himself, but it is true. Would you like FU money? Given the current economic and societal outlook, that would be handy, wouldn't it? Perhaps your freedom cash is closer than you think. But first, a warning, because those who possess obvious FU bank, from Branson to Bankman Fried, must support the system's current thing. I'd also advise against emulating outspoken Andrew Tate types to create your freedom cash, because you'll come to the attention of exactly the wrong people. Instead, join Thor's group, who are quietly creating freedom exits with fellow skeptical business owners and investors. What's your end game? A small holding, an ocean-capable boat, a wee Scottish island, perhaps? Consider on a 1 to 10 scale where you are on your journey to freedom, because we all have to exit one way or another, cash out or coffin out. To create your freedom plan, connect with Thor, linkedin.com slash in slash Thor Holt, T-H-O-R-H-O-L-T. And you can join Thor's enterprising skeptic community for free at thorholt.substack.com and enjoy a cool video of Thor's high-speed boat trip on his family's own Scottish island, which is his version of freedom. By the way, you won't find Thor with a Substack name search because this is an invite-only community. So it's thorholt.substack.com, T-H-O-R-H-O-L-T.substack.com. Put that into your browser or connect with Thor at linkedin.com slash in slash Thor Holt. Now back to the show. Yeah, you're going to get in trouble for the both lives matter because we had all lives matter. You're definitely not allowed to say that. You're a bit more modest, both. Not all, just both. That's a, just, that's a bit more moderate. Well, put... Father Sean said unborn lives matter. Oh, yeah. So if he's allowed to. Yeah, yeah, good point. Um, and you say, and you talk about choice there, and, and you say that it's not pro-choice, it's no choice, I've heard you say. I mean, because what is the thing? The thinking is just that women aren't given the options. They don't know what they could do. They're sort of intimidated into thinking, in some cases, that they have to have an abortion, stuff like that. Yeah, totally. So the BBC uh, came out with polling in May 2022, so like not that long ago, that said one in five women, or almost one in five women, who have abortions do so against their will. 
that's a terrible statistic. Whether you identify as pro-life or pro-choice, like nobody wants women to be in this situation where they feel like they have no choice other than to have an abortion. Maybe that's coercive pressure from their partner. Maybe that's economic pressure because they don't have a job and they don't know how they're going to cope uh, bringing another life into the world. But we should be actually uniting and tackling this issue to say that no woman should be forced into having an abortion and let's find ways uh, to reduce that. Um, so yeah, they, sorry, I've, I've lost track of your question because I got so passionate about the answer. No, it's, it's, no <laughs> you, you're answering it. It's, it's about this no choice thing versus pro choice. Oh, and yeah. it, and it's, it is something you don't hear. You hear about the cases where people are, you know, they might be forced to have the child or they really don't want to have it. They're very popular in the media, but you don't hear so much about these cases. I knew someone who, their partner at the time, they were pregnant, and then the, the guy basically threatened suicide. He was saying, if you have this baby, you know, I'm, I'll, I'll kill myself, which is a horrific thing to do. Yeah. So then she got the abortion. Later, she had a medical issue where she now can't have children. And so that's one of her, obviously, biggest regrets that she did that, and she feels terrible about it. And now she can't have children. I mean, isn't that absolutely tragic? And she would have had the baby if, if not for this coercion yeah. to not have it. It's so common. And another really common one is if you have the baby, you're going to leave you. So that puts women in a terrible situation. There's Alina Dalgari, who is um, a lady that's spoken out actually on the buffer zones issue because she was in that situation. Her partner said, if you have this baby, I'm never going to see it. I'm never going to see you again. She actually was also had recently lost her job just at the point of becoming pregnant. She was really in a desperate situation and she thought she had no choice. She called the abortion facility actually and said, what are my options here? And they said, sorry, we only offer abortion. So she said, well, I guess that's that's what my lot is. She went along to the appointment and she received one of those leaflets uh, about help and she went to get the help available, find out more about it. She got housing, she got everything she needed and she kept her baby who's now about 10 years old and she now is somebody who goes out and gives out leaflets to help other women who are walking in her shoes. And those are the voices of women that you never hear about. You never hear about the women who have abortion regret in the media or who had a positive experience in, in taking the help on offer from pro-life uh, women because these are these are real women and often they have been in vulnerable situations and they don't get you know booked on different tv shows they don't get in front of the microphones um, but they are the, actually the ones who suffer most at the consequences of these policies which either shove women down a road a path into abortions that they don't want or, or take away the help that they would like to have uh, so I think that's a really important voice in the debate. Yeah, and the, so of course adoption is another is another option you don't hear enough about. We need we need people to adopt, but then people people say no, we got to have you're going to be allowed to have an abortion, but then they say, well, what about all these kids that need adopting? Yeah, I think it's something we could really look into our country, you know, a little bit more at adoption. Like the the process, I don't know why I'm not an expert on this topic, but I know people who have been trying to adopt and it takes a very long time. It's a very grueling uh, process. And of course, it needs to be, uh, you need to make sure that these are you know, going to be good parents. Absolutely. But if, if we look more into the adoption and foster care system and look at how we can be um, supporting uh, more lives and also supporting parents. And if we adopt policies that are supporting mothers and fathers uh, to be able to care for children, um, that's something that could be you know, used to really tackle uh, the abortion endemic. There's so many women who, are, who feel it's like one in three, one in four, who end up having an abortion. It's, it's not a good situation for a society to be in. Let's help women a little bit more. Mm. We've also got a low birth rate across the West and many countries. So that's a, that's a bit of a problem. And we need to fix that somehow. So we need to somehow incentivize people to have children. But um, even though I'm probably not going to do it, but everyone else should, guys. Um, but what, what are the core arguments? Because I should have thought about this because I was, I was so focused on the buffer zones. I didn't think enough about all the classic arguments about how many weeks and stuff. 
I mean, what do you think of the how many weeks thing? Because that's, we actually have, to my recollection anyway, the same, we have 24 weeks is our rule, isn't it? And it's the same as Holland. I think that's the case. And when, you, when you're the same as Holland in anything, you know you've gone ultra, <laughs> ultra liberal. And we actually have a much more so-called liberal or extreme policy than like France, Belgium, all these, most of Europe. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So the EU average is somewhere between 12 and 15 weeks is the cutoff point for an abortion. Uh, but in the UK, it's 24. So we are about double. Um, and there's not much of a reason for it to be 24. I think at the time when they were pushing through the law, they probably thought that um, viability was about 24 weeks. Well, it's not anymore. It's now 21 weeks in a day. And with medical science advancing, it's only going to get lower and lower uh, with uh, babies' lives being able to sustain after medicine outside the womb. So it doesn't really make sense for it to be 24 weeks. And in fact, most women recognize that um, in 2017 polling, uh, 70% of women uh, said that they would like to see the abortion limit uh, lowered to something more humane. So there's some people who said 22, 20, 60 and different uh, ways that they thought that it should be lowered. But most women recognize that it is too high at the moment. Hmm. Yeah, that's inter- when you, so that's interesting that most women recognize that. But um, you don't hear about that too much in the media. But yes, yeah, science is not on, on, on the pro, so-called pro-choice side, really, because it's becoming more and more obvious that, that it is a baby earlier and earlier. And so it's very hard to justify that. And actually, lefties like Christopher Hitchens used to be very pro-life, you know, when he was alive. He, was, he actually said that um, the only reasonable point is conception. If you look at it philosophically, he couldn't work out any other point that made sense. And so this would, I mean, people who love Hitchens now would probably almost all be pro-choice that this might freak them out a bit. But he was, he had a quite an interesting analogy, which again, I'm just remembering roughly, but it was, it was something like if, if you saw a, a woman be kicked in the stomach or something, obviously everyone would be sickened. But who would not be more sickened if we then found out that woman was pregnant? And who would really just say it's just because we think it's worse for the woman because that's even more uncomfortable for her? He's saying, no, 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 we, we know that is a baby and we have a... A kind of it's something like an inherent respect for life that we we can't get rid of. It's it's instinctive. Yeah, I think the most kind of if you boil down that kind of thinking, the, the most or the bite-sized version of the argument is: Is a baby human? Do humans have rights? Therefore, is abortion wrong? Now, is a baby human? Of course, when you're not pregnant with a sheep, or are you? I mean, the a sheep plus a sheep makes a baby sheep. A human plus a human makes a baby human. Um, almost like I think the 98% of biologists uh, in a study in the States recognized that human life begins at conception. It's just a, a basic biological fact. So we do know that a baby is a human. Humans have rights. Yes, we do recognize that humans have rights. And we recognize that they have that in different uh, situations of life as well. And some people would say, well, a baby's very dependent uh, on its mother. Uh, and that's true. Like it, it isn't an independent life. But I would argue that actually for the first couple of years, if you leave a baby on its own, it's going to die. (laughs) Babies are not able outside of the womb to take care of themselves either. So why would rights start after birth and not before? And in fact, you could even roll that argument out further. You could say people lying in hospital beds, if you're a perfectly competent person uh, and suddenly one day you're, you're on your bike and you get hit by a bus and you are lying in a hospital, you might be dependent in that moment. You might be dependent on medicine. You might be dependent on doctors. Uh, and, if, and we don't say that, oh, suddenly you've lost your rights because you have lost some of your human capabilities for this time. We don't say that uh, because we recognize that humanity is something that endures past that. Um, so it's 
there is no way to break down human rights into saying some humans have them and some humans don't. We tried that in the past. We tried that with things like slavery. We tried that with different um, terrible human rights abuses. And the conclusion has always been, no, there is no way to segregate people to say some people have rights and some people don't. And therefore, it's very, very difficult to say a 24-year-old baby doesn't have rights, a 25-year-old one does, even 40 weeks, 41 weeks, one week, two weeks, what is the difference? This is actually an argument that came out in a court case last year where there was a girl with Down syndrome um, who challenged the UK law because you can have an abortion with a child with Down syndrome up to 40 weeks up to the day of birth. Uh, but if they don't have Down syndrome, then you uh, their life is protected from 24. So Heidi Crafter was her name. And, and she and I are actually the same age. We were both born in the same year. I won't tell you which one. And w when my life started to get legal protection at 24 weeks, hers did not. So she would have been um, much more vulnerable than I was. So if you try and say that one person has rights and one person doesn't, you get into very, very hot water very quickly about different communities uh, who would be overlooked in that. So if it is a human, we know that biologically, it does have rights. So we know that from law and from the natural law and from the different ways that we organize our society. Then the baby does have rights and it is wrong um, in that case to deprive them of their life. Yeah, I remember that case. It was very moving. I, I can't stand all this stuff where it's like people with Down syndrome don't deserve to live and stuff. I just find it disgusting. But um, and when you talk about dependency, yeah, it makes me think of those like videos of elephants when they just they have the baby and it's just it's just up and walking and doing everything straight away. It's like we're not like that as humans. So you're right. You're dependent for ages. And this this rights question, though, even on GB News, someone claimed that the baby didn't have rights until right up to the point of nine months. I was thinking, where did they get that from? That's not even, and you said well, it's not even true. And you were even on debating on GB News. And people say GB News is right-wing echo chamber. <laughs> it's absolutely mad. You're on there. Two people within the space of a week said that we should be able to kill babies up to nine months. I was like, this is an extremist position. Like hardly anyone thinks that. And I heard two people advocate that in a week on GB News, this alleged right-wing channel. And they were saying that to you. I mean, that is it. And, and just quickly as well on that human rights thing. The only danger of your argument that, you know, well, when we're when we're born, we also can be dependent and we don't we have rights. Well, probably some of these people would say no, because there was that thing in Virginia. Where it felt like they were trying to get rid of rights even once the baby's born. Like you, you, it can be born. And then and then some people seem to be saying that you should still be able to kill it. I don't know if I was getting carried away, but I heard that some guy in Virginia that Ralph something suggests something like that. Am I right? Yeah, there are some, there are even philosophers in the UK, academics, who are uh, arguing for infanticide and say, yeah, actually, babies shouldn't have rights until they're one, two, or different, uh, they reach different stages of development. I think that you can argue that from a philosophical point of view, and we could, but I think all you need to do is actually hold a newborn baby, a one-week-old baby in your arms, hold a six-month-old baby in your arms. And if you can genuinely do that and say, actually, I could kill this and it wouldn't make a difference. Like, there's no way you could. And let's be honest with ourselves as humans. We just know that it's wrong to kill babies. Um, so if we can kind of take that logic and say, well, why would it count uh, one day after birth rather than one day before? How far go, um, you know, is it visibility that makes someone have rights? No. The only way to justify this is just to say that they do have rights. Now, that my position, I understand, is not the most common position. I have, you know, I would support life from conception and, and a lot of people don't. But the other end of the extreme as well, the 40 weeks abortion, that's also not common. Most people fall somewhere in the middle. But what I, what I would say is, you know, 
there's two possible extremes. One is to say only the baby matters, only the baby has rights. Doesn't matter about the woman what she wants, and that's obviously wrong. Of course, the woman matters. The woman matters infinitely. She's also a human being. She also has rights, and she needs to be supported. And some people would take it to the other extreme, and they'd say only the woman has rights in this situation. Only her choice matters, and the baby doesn't matter at all. And that's, as we just discussed, that doesn't make sense either if, the, if we base our thinking on human rights, if we understand what a baby is, uh, then we can't say that that's right either. So what I'm saying is somewhere in the middle, actually, let's meet at, at the right point and say that both lives matter, both lives of the mother and of the child. Let's find solutions in our society to support both and make it possible for both to thrive. Yeah. And even... Christopher Hitchens did an interview with Dennis Prager. It was about 2005 or something. And he was saying that even then he was going, oh, luckily the left is dropping this idea that it's just a part of the woman's body. And he was saying that then, but that's come back with a vendor. Now that's, <laughs> that's thought to be the only argument you can say. You thought to be some sort of sort of miscreant and wretch and criminal if you say that it, it might be a separate life, which is absolutely mad. But can I just say one... I shouldn't keep saying my view on it. I'm just trying to be an objective interviewer. But can I just ask one controversial question? So Jacob Rees-Mogg got in a bit of a, not really a pickle, because he, he sort of got out of it by just being very honest in a way that someone like, for example, Tim Farron struggled with, which is when you're a Christian in politics in the UK these days, it's very difficult because everyone hates Christianity now. But, but Jacob Rees-Mogg said that he would be in favour of, of um, you know, against abortion, even in cases of rape. And he, this is a very controversial question. It's obviously a very rare case, but it gets used to sort of defeat the pro-life yeah. argument. What do you make of that? Yeah, I have so much sympathy and empathy for that because being raped is probably one of the worst uh, things imaginable for a woman to go through. Uh, it's so traumatic and I can only imagine how awful uh, that situation must be. Um, I think what gets overlooked often in that kind of gotcha question is that abortion is also an awful and traumatic experience. And most women will tell you that, that they, you know, whether they decided that it was the right decision or not in the end, most people did not enjoy their abortion. It's not an experience that they wanted. And it is something uh, that is proven by even pro-choice uh, psychologist scholars. Uh, David Ferguson is his name, is an Australian scholar. Um, he um, saw that it greatly increased uh, or was linked at least uh, to an increase in uh, suicidal thoughts, depression, uh, alcohol abuse, drug abuse. So we know that abortion itself can also be a very traumatic experience. So what we're saying if we say that people who have been raped have to have abortions is that they have had one trauma and you're suggesting that we solve that with another trauma. That just makes two traumas. What we should be looking for is solutions that really help and support that vulnerable woman who's gone through a terrible traumatic experience. Support her and support the life uh, that has also been born of that um, experience and make sure that we can find a ways uh, to, to champion that. There are so many great people uh, throughout history who have been born through that violent circumstance and have made a great difference uh, in their lives. Um, and actually, Father Sean Gough, uh, who was praying, actually, we talked about him uh, earlier in the show. Uh, that was an experience that he had had. He was born in a situation of severe violence, and that's something that motivates him to care for mothers and their children. So that's why I say follow Father Sean's example and follow his mom's example and say, okay, let's find a solution that empowers both and protects both. Yeah. With that, with the question of rape, I mean, it's, I see philosophically, it's very hard to argue that you've had one heinous crime and then you should add a sort of, if we think it is killing a baby, then how could you argue to add that on top of that? But in the real world and being pragmatic, 
I don't think I would have the heart to say to someone who'd been raped, oh, no, you can't have an abortion personally. I think, I, I mean, I, most people think as a man, I shouldn't even be talking about the issue. So I think I personally would struggle with that. But philosophically, I see that it's very, it's very hard to justify. But anyway, yeah, I mean, there, with there, there's a book about it's called there's a turnaway study, I believe I need to check that's the right one. If it's not, then I'll just have to send you a message and you'll correct it at some point. Um, but it actually listens to the voices uh, of women who have um, been deprived of an abortion uh, that they wanted one and they were either in a country or in a situation where they were told they can't have one. And it does look at their journey through um, motherhood or through whatever situation they had to go to if they opted for adoption after. Uh, it looks at one year, five year later, and most women, a huge percentage of them, um, said that they were glad that they had not had an abortion. So we have to listen to those stories as well and not assume uh, that we uh, know already um, what's best without even looking into the details and find these solutions so that other mothers can find uh, the situation where they would find uh, you know, healing. A really moderate position I think we should all agree on is that abortion is regrettable. What, what we seem to have ended up with now is people celebrating it, which is which is pretty sick. I mean, you had Michelle Wolf, the comedian, do a sort of joke about it. I guess it was a joke, but she at the president's dinner a few years ago. And then yeah. in general, just there's a sort of tone. It's gone from, well, it's, it's obviously not great, but in some cases the woman has to do it, to like a weird, like celebrating people out marching and celebrating and wearing weird hats and stuff. How have we got to that point? Yeah, uh-huh. I think it's a real shame. I think that this issue has been so lost to the culture war. It's extreme versus extreme. And we've imported, I mean, the, the argument has widely been imported from America, where they did have a very, very extreme situation. In some states, you could have an abortion up to 40 weeks, which is something that you can never do um, in most of Europe. Um, but in doing and making it so tribal, we've actually lost what's important was, you know, how do we actually support women? What solutions could we come to um, to better support women and children? And it's suddenly just become, I'm team this, I'm team that, and, you know, no dialogue in the middle. And um, so I think if we listen to the voices of women who've had abortions, who have um, regretted them, if we listen to the voices of women uh, who were able to make an empowered choice for life and why they did that, then we would find a much better, you know, situation. Just because you mentioned America, what did you think of that Roe versus Wade being overturned? I mean, the legal argument was it was always a bad law with lots of flaws and yeah. it relied on things that weren't really in the Constitution. But then obviously everyone went mental about it because it, it was like, well, were you stopping women getting abortions was the sort of headline. <laughs> Yeah, it was definitely uh, misreported as well. It actually, it was a legal decision at, it was on a technical level. It just made it not um, done through the Supreme Court, but that each state could organize through democracy, uh, through debate and discussion and voting uh, where they would like to protect life, uh, which seems to me like a more sensible way to do things. If you're going to have a big cultural issue like this, it should be decided by the people, not by, by the way, it was nine or seven men out of a nine uh, person Supreme Court at the time. So it wasn't a woman's choice, by the way, <laughs> to ever have Roe v. Wade um, come into being. And actually, the lady who was at the center of the case later in life said that she wasn't so sure uh, that she had been, uh, or she felt that she'd been used by the movement to kind of make this political point that she had never really wanted to be a part of. So it was, um, I, I was glad to see it be overturned. I think that it was it had embedded a culture where we weren't prepared to consider the value of life. We weren't prepared to consider if, um, you know, what would it look like if we were to value babies and to, you know, have uh, great charitable measures available to support um, babies from the earliest stages of their life. Now those conversations are opened, that we're able to see 
what we can do as a society to be better, to better support women. Uh, whereas abortion kind of was a stick on solution, basically from the sexual revolution. It is actually a very oppressive tool. The sexual revolution um, allowed, you know, it brought in um, a, a larger percentage of chance that a man would get a woman pregnant out of wedlock or out of having a situation of support. Um, and then said, oh, but don't worry about it. You can just have an abortion. It actually is something that is not empowering to women in the end. Um, so I think having that conversation reopened by the overturn of Roe v. Wade and having uh, states and people be able to decide how they want to care for their women and their children is, is definitely an improvement on what was before. All right. Well, I was going to actually do this later, but you've tempted me now to ask you, because you've mentioned <laughs> women's empowerment, you've tempted me to ask you, are you a feminist? Because you put out a <laughs> poll on Twitter when you're asking people, uh, women specifically, sorry, do you identify as feminist? I haven't seen the results of the poll, but why did you put that poll out and are you a feminist? It's such an interesting question. I don't know because I don't know what feminism means. <laughs> um, and I don't think anyone has known what feminism means for a long time. I remember being unsure if I was a feminist at university and my, like my closest friends were like, how dare you think that? Of course, of course you're a feminist. Uh, do you believe in equality? Do you think men are equal to women? Then you're a feminist. And I don't think that's true anymore. Maybe if that's what feminism started as, it's not really what it's associated with, with, any, with anymore. Um, quite often now it's associated with um, saying that women are even better than men and, and kind of emasculating men or um, putting, you know, putting in place arguments that are unarguable because if you don't, then you're not feminist and you're not for women. And that's not really helpful when it becomes a label that's just tribal, that doesn't really mean anything because it encompasses so much, then I'm not sure I could personally put it on myself. Maybe it was defined in the right way. If you gave me a very clear definition that I was comfortable with, I could say, yes, I'm a feminist, but I don't think that's available in our society. But I was interested, though, because I thought that um, I was pretty unique in that. I thought I was um, one of very few women who would identify as feminist. But I actually saw a BBC article uh, yesterday, which kind of prompted the poll that said that uh, less than one in five, and this is 2019, less than one in five women are identifying as feminists, which really surprised me. So maybe there's a cultural moment where we're all a bit confused about what feminism is. Um, yeah, I've heard that poll where women don't actually admit being feminist or say it in a poll, but then the whole culture seems to be massively feminist. So it's very confusing. We need to ask, as for what it is, we need to ask Jermaine Greer because she was one of the main <laughs> proponents of it. But you know what she said? And I can't find this quote, so I'll sound mental. But she actually said that um, when she realized how much she didn't like women, then she realized <laughs> how men must feel. Then she realized, oh, no, <laughs> women need protection. And she actually did it. She said once to protect women because, you know, they need protection because they're vulnerable. And that she, <laughs> I can't find that quote, but she definitely said it, but she said a lot of provocative yeah. things. But um, yeah, go on, what were you gonna say? Yeah, well, the very earliest feminist movement in the 1950s or whatnot, um, they were actually for protecting and supporting women um, in the capacity that they already were in. So if they were mothers, how can they support them to be mothers and also engage in what they call creative work? Um, so was that, you know, allowing women to work at home and sustain a job? Was there a way to be able to allow them to do both and fit the workplace around the woman, not the woman around the workplace? But when the 70s and the next wave of feminism came in, suddenly it became making women just more like men. So that instead of having children and being able to work at the same time and having that kind of empowering lifestyle, we were to we were given the pill we were given abortion we were told if you want to be in the workplace you got to act like a man you got to think like a man 
Um, they say something else like a man that I wouldn't say. Um, and, um, you know, like, we want to be empowered. You want to be able to stick around and not care about it. And if you read Louise Perry's book, that's not how most women are wired. Um, that's not how feminine psychology has developed. But it became something of women just have to be the same as men. And I think true feminism, if we want, if I, if I wanted to identify as feminist, if the only feminism that I can identify is that original feminism of let's empower women to be women and let the world work around us and not just diminish what a woman is to fit in neatly to the box, uh, which has been made for us. Sorry to interrupt again, but I'd quickly like to talk about personal training. Now, if you've watched me on GB News, you know I love personal training, mainly because I talk about it, not really because you can see it. But that's because I'm not really following the diet part. I'm just doing the strength part. However, our sponsor today can help you with both. Harry Willis is a men's online fitness transformation and health coach. He's also a regular writer for the international fitness brand Techno Gym for all things stress, sleep, and wellness. He helps fluffy Body shy, out of breath men, nothing like me, become strong, focused, and unshakable one step at a time. For each of his clients, Harry designs bespoke nutrition and well-being protocols together with proven gym training routines that deliver results every time. Unlike other coaches, he doesn't just email you a program and leave you to it. He's there every step of the way providing advice, guidance, and support. You'll join an online network of people who've also decided to take back control and start the journey of realizing their full potential. There you can hear each other's struggles and successes, get tips and insights, and support each other to achieve your fitness and health goals. So get in touch with Harry on Instagram. It's at Harry underscore Willis or his link tree, linktr.ee slash Willis Coaching. So that's Harry Willis, W-I-L-L-I-S. Listeners to this podcast will receive a free zero-obligation 45-minute consultation to strategize their specific goals and needs. Just quote the big dog when you make contact because that's my nickname on GB News. But if that's too embarrassing, just say Nick Dixon or the current thing. I'm sure it will work fine. So that's Harry Willis, W-I-L-L-I-S, Harry underscore Willis or link tree slash Willis coaching. Now back to the show. Are you one of these people who thinks that the sort of getting women into the corporate world was a kind of trick because it was sold as empowerment, but then suddenly your work, I mean, it's, you're a sort of highly competent professional, but then again, as a woman, for many women now, they're sort of, they're working in some soulless corporate job because it, basically because of inflation, once, once, once the sort of system got two people in the workplace, it devalues work. So instead of being able to live off one wage, we suddenly had to have two wages and even then it's hard to even buy a house. So you know, was that mm. empowerment or was that just a trick of sort of capitalism? Maybe I sound like a lefty here. And uh, <laughs> I mean, or, or, or do you want to work like, you know, is that important to you? Or are you a trad wife or <laughs> potential trad wife? Because you're only engaged at this stage, I think. No, that's such a fair question. It is a funny situation I find myself in because I actually, I, I am grateful for the women who allowed me to have a vote, allowed me to have, you know, be able to speak on a podcast about things that I've been thinking about. And, and I obviously enjoy my work I love my work um so no I am grateful to be able to hold this position and I will continue uh, as a wife um but I want to make sure that I, I just want to have everything and I think all women like we can find a situation where women can have everything I'm tired of being told that we can't that we can either be like one of female mommy like mummy trad wives yummy mummies or we can be you know business executives there's loads of women who are able to manage and find a balance to have both. And if working hours can be made flexible, if working situations, be like, if, if workplaces can value what women are bringing uh, and work around them, then that's a situation that would benefit everybody. We'd have woman's voice in the workplace and we'd be able to have her raise the next generation of children. Okay, so you think you can do both. All right, fair enough. And when you say you thank women for being allowed on the podcast, really it was me 
that asked you on. I mean, you've, you've taken it away from men again. The struggles of men. I mean, men didn't have the vote till 1918 either, by the way, because you know it, the vote was not given to men in this country because they weren't if they weren't 30 years old or owned property. So there, yeah. we had to fight something called the First World War to actually normal men like from humble backgrounds like me. I would not have had the vote. So you know, let's just not to get all men's rights about it suddenly. But um, I'm only joking. But we, we, well, that part's true. But um, what about turfs then? Because so-called turfs because just while we're on this feminist thing because that's a strange alliance between sort of people who are more conservative or many who are more conservative who who are against some of the excesses of the sort of so-called trans rights movement we're in a strange alliance with the with the feminists on that but then they suddenly call it misogynist all the time I always think it's not misogynist I always think it's just leftists being mental you know, like not allowing women their own spaces or, you know, putting male rapists into women's prisons. I always think this is just ho- horrible and insane. But then it gets called like, yes, it's misogynist. And I'm like, is it? Why is it, why is it men's fault again? I think it's just leftist mania. Any thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah, I think we have slightly lost a grip on reality. And then um, especially with all this stuff that's going been going on in Scotland recently with double rapists being put in women's prison, of course, that's just absolutely insane. Um, to think that that's in any way a safe uh, policy solution. In terms of the, the kind of funny partnership, it is that people talk about this a lot. Um, and I do think it's funny. I get kind of, you know, if I go to, I was at um, a women's rally in Scotland a couple of weeks ago uh, where uh, Kelly, Kelly Jean is at Posey Parker was speaking and um, a lot of kind of I guess like the opposition to the rally said oh look that Lois McClatchy's there and she's like you know pro-life and anti-abortion and like oh you're just like this is what it really is like can people not hold two different opinions can I be pro-life and think that a woman is a biological woman and can someone else not be pro-life but actually still agree on, on one point how have we lost sight of this ability that we can think different things about different issues and suddenly we're all in tribe left or tribe right I think like, it, it has been interesting. I'll just keep going on this theme since I'm on it. It's been interesting in the last couple of years um, to watch the complete disillusion, I think, of, of left and right. I don't think we have those categories anymore. We just have people who uh, are interested, I think, in kind of freedom uh, and liberalism and, and reality, uh, and those that um, would be less inclined for, for freedom or, or less understanding of what it really means to have a free society where everybody can express their opinions, discuss, debate, and that debate is okay. It's we don't need to live in a society where we only never hear things we disagree with. Yeah, it's so weird. Even Kelly J got called right wing. It's like, you know, she's just a right wing. She's not really a feminist. She's just a right winger. It's hilarious, hilarious way to dismiss someone. That's all right. That's feminism. Just what did you think just quickly to the um, pr- the vaccine argument when people were saying um, people were saying my body, my choice with abortion. Then the vaccine came along. Suddenly it was like, have the vaccine. It's not your body. You don't, No autonomy. And then and then there's an idea that if you're pro-life, some people were saying it's hypocritical to be anti-vaccine mandates, whereas I, I, it never was to me because the whole point is you're saying it's a separate life. So I was saying I'd like to have a choice over the totally safe and effective treatment, but uh, but I'd also this is probably going on YouTube, so just but I'd also <laughs> argue that in, a, in when it comes to abortion, that is a separate life that you are taking. So so therefore, you can be anti-vaccine mandate and pro-life. But you can't be the reverse because the reverse is saying, okay, you have to have this vaccine. You have no choice. But suddenly it's my body, my choice on abortion, which, which is inconsistent. Now, the only counter they could offer, as far as I can see, is they say, well, if it reduces transmission, which 
it's questionable at this point, let's just say, if it reduces transmission massively, then actually it is other people's lives that you have a responsibility for. So they were arguing the reverse. They were arguing sort of, you know, it's, it's other people's lives you have to care about with the vaccine. But when it comes to abortion, it's just a woman's life. It's not a separate life. So any thoughts on yeah. that? I think I've got it right, kind of. <laughs> yeah, I think so. It's a, it's a tough one, isn't it? Because it's quite convoluted Yeah. <laughs> um, to go around in circles like that. But um, yeah, I think that to every life should be protected. Uh, oh, this is such a difficult conversation. <laughs> but, were you, but you were presumably anti-vaccine uh, mandate or COVID passports I, and all that kind of thing. I, so my personal position, you have to hold a position, but my personal position was I, I got the vaccine. Sorry. Uh, I needed to travel a little po- bit. Podcast ends I, now. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I'll get myself um, in trouble again. Carry I, on. I know. Just, um, but I live, as you know, I live in Austria and at, in Austria at the time. Oh yeah. It went we mental. had a, we had a, a man, we, they introduced a law that would make it a criminal offense not to get the vaccine. Um, and I did really strongly oppose that. I think it's it's very wrong to to force anybody to be in that situation because it's their own body. But you're right, and it's it's not um, therefore a conclusion that the abortion is not a parallel because that's not your body; it's another different body. And you'll know that you know babies can live outside the womb for 21 weeks in a day now. Um, it's very clearly got different DNA, a baby and its mother, a baby has half its dad, half its mum. It's a different human being. It's a different life. It's a different person. Um, so to equivalent those two things uh, isn't a fair argument. Yeah. Um, All right. I, I agree. I mean, yeah, Austria went particularly mad about the COVID passports, but we don't have time for that argument. What about um, just quickly about Christianity? So how far does being a Christian inform your worldview? Because I was always, I mean, I was always a Christian vaguely, but then I was also always lent towards pro-life personally in a sort of moderate way before I was, it was never particularly tied together for me. It was just, I just thought it was, you know, it's just, just what my position was. So how far are those two related for you? Yeah, I'd say they are, um, they are tangential, um, but they're not dependent. Um, so my pro-life convictions that every life matters is based on human rights, which you can also say is a Christian concept. Christianity introduced human rights back in the day, that our whole system of the fact that every life is equally valued and important, no matter rich or poor, black or white, slave or not slave in the Bible, all of these things, this was a fundamental kind of root of Christianity. So I suppose if you go back in history, you can say they're connected uh, on the philosophical side. But I think most people can see that argument, whether they profess a faith or not. And it's also grounded in, in basic biology, which you can see um, just by, you know, biological studies uh, to say that life begins in conception um, and therefore you know humans have rights and we should support both lives so the my pro-life convictions are based on on those things but uh, my faith is also a part of that I think um, I don't have a blind faith I have a faith based on on reason um, and that's part of the world around us so you know you can go a step further and say you know the philosophical roots of my convictions go back to the fact that I believe that this stuff is true and you know one could even say biology points to uh, you know there being a god so I guess there's there's a connection there but I think it's very very easy and many people are pro-life without necessarily then going a step further and saying because of god because of the bible because of anything like that it's not you know because the bible says so it's because these things are clearly true rooted and I also believe they're in my faith. It's interesting that you say you've got a philosophical basis for faith because on Twitter, if you mention you're a Christian, people just say, oh, you believe in the sky, wizard. <laughs> and these people think they're smarter than C.S. Lewis. 
and all the great <laughs> geniuses who've been Christian throughout history. It's like, oh, you've cracked it, have you? Even though Tolkien mm. was a Christian and C.S. Lewis, you're smarter than them. And um, it annoys me. And, and they don't realize there is a philosophical basis. And actually, William Lane Craig, if you watch his old debates with Christopher Hitchens about God versus atheism, he pretty much spanks him. I mean, he does win. So actually, there, there are philosophical arguments for it. But that's one of my little hobby horses. Right? Do you think that Christianity can recover in this country? We've just seen that they're about to, they're talking about getting rid of our father from the Lord's Prayer in the Church of England, which to me is such an assault on, I mean, I grew up, we, we said the Lord's Prayer in a normal school, it was not particularly Christian school, just schools were Church of England then. And we said the Lord's Prayer at least once a day. And that was just such a part of our culture. So even aside from the spiritual side, the cultural assault, the, 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 the silent cultural revolution we've been through where you could end up with our father being banned from the Lord's Prayer. So my yeah. question is, can the Church of England, I mean, you're Scottish, but can the Church, the sort of, can Christianity in, in Britain recover from where it is? Yeah, it's a really political question. <laughs> I, um, no, I absolutely think it's outrageous and heartbreaking that that is being entertained within the institution of the Church of England. I mean, even if you want to take woke ideology at its word, it's still wrong because God clearly has preferred he, him pronouns in scripture. So if you're going to take that line of argument, then you are misgendering him and that's surely a kind of woke crime. But that's really far from the point. Yeah, that's beating them on their turf. <laughs> that's playing by their rules. We still win. We still win, but we don't need to because, um, no, I mean, it, the Bible is very clear. Christianity is very clear uh, that... Uh, God doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't accidentally put people in their wrong bodies. And it's it's a heartbreaking thing in our culture that, that young people think that this is something wrong with them. We should be uh, empowering them to be comfortable and confident in their bodies that were made for them. And, and the church should be saying that God made for them uh, because um, they are, you know, beautifully, wonderfully made and loved uh, by a creator. And this isn't something that they should, this isn't kind of a harmful surgery that they should be going for or a harmful course of treatment or whatever it may be. So the church is doing a disservice uh, to the people around it by, you know, not wanting to offend, not wanting to upset and buying into this stuff. But I don't think that that represents the true, gosh, it's going to be trouble. I don't think that that um, ideology or what's happened there represents what the church truly stands for. Um, I think you can find, you shouldn't be looking to, um, you know, cultural leaders over time. Uh, to forget the basis for your faith, but look at the Bible. <laughs> look at the Bible and what it says uh, about gender, about life uh, from conception until natural death, and get your faith from there, get Christianity from there, uh, because that hasn't changed in 2,000 years, and it's not going to be changing on a daily basis like we've seen recently at the Synod. So this is a difficult question, but that was a good answer. But on a previous podcast, we spoke about how we can win the so-called culture war. And I, you know, maybe that's sort of lame to think of it like that, but we, but you know, it is happening. I get attacked every day on Twitter just for my job and existing. So can we actually, I ask you if Christianity can recover, but can we win in general this culture war and get to some sort of more normal life? And how do we do it? Yeah, I mean, that's like a, a big societal level, but I think we can also answer it on an individual person by person level, right? I mean, it, like this just takes time and philosophical thought. Um, but if we are able to get to a point where we can, and I think the tide is turning, uh, especially on um, protecting young people who uh, are confused and worried about their gender. I think most of us can say now, there are situations where this does go too far, that we shouldn't be putting uh, rapists in women's prisons. We shouldn't be telling 12, 13, 14 year olds uh, that there's something wrong with their body uh, just because they aren't used to it or just because they don't feel that they fit in, that they should have um, surgeries or, or whatever is going on there. So I think there is a 
turning point uh, that's going that people are waking up to see that uh, there's a better way that we can be protecting our fellow citizen, our fellow man. Um, will it completely, <laughs> who knows what the future holds? Uh, but I think if it's a person by person basis that we can consider these things for ourselves uh, and get to the conclusion of what is right to do, um, then that's kind of how, how things build into a cultural movement later. Okay, good answer. So we've taken an hour of your time. I think that's probably enough because you've got to go and fight all these various legal battles to, <laughs> to win the culture war, which you're actually doing. I mean, you're actually taking action and doing things. You're defending people against this ridiculous, in my opinion, ridiculous buffer zone rules and things like that. So you are you are doing it. And um, what I was going to say to you, it's it's cool. I think it's cool that people like you are advocating for the pro-life side because people see you're not a nutter and you're just a nice person who normal smart people can have these views. So you know, I think there's a caricature of a sort of pro-life Christian nutter, which is definitely not you. So uh, thanks for doing this. Is there any, now, where can we find you on the old internet? Yeah, well, you can follow me on Twitter at uh, Alois McClatch. Um, How do you spell it? It's L O I S and then McClatch, M C L A T C H. L A T C H, I know. Um, not the easiest surname, but I feel like it's iconic. So let me know if you think I should change it for my marriage or not. Um, <laughs> oh, when you change to ma- in marriage, did you change your name? Yeah. Well, I'm going to change my name in real life, but should I change it online? Because I feel like my Twitter. Oh, interesting. It's a whole thing you have to consider now when you get married. You change your Twitter handle. That's your the new brand. Your marriage is going to ruin your brand is what I'm hearing. <laughs> well, Calvin does pretty well as well with his own pro-life advocating. So maybe we'll give him that. What, what would but, it be? Are we allowed to say? Just, yeah, it would be Lois Miller. It's not quite got the same ring, has it? No. I see what you mean. Yeah. Tricky. No. But then again, of course, you have to take the man's name. You know, it's just, what know, are you, a feminist? Yeah, i, I got to live up to my reputation. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so at Lois McClatch for now. At Lois McClatch. And you can find out all about ADF's work and our cases and the ones we've spoken about today and others on ADF.uk. Um, and if you'd like to support our work or sign up to our newsletter, you can find all the information about how to do that there. Okay, well, thanks, and good luck with the cases, although by the time this comes out, they'll have already happened, so I hope (laughs) you won, I guess. (laughs) Thank you, I hope so too. (laughs) All right, thanks. All right.